Welcome to the Earthshot Podcast, where we champion the Earthshot, a monumental effort to achieve planetary regeneration, restoring the Earth and humanity's place within it. At Earthshot Labs, we're developing the science, technology, and financial systems in service of ecological restoration. Natural climate solutions, in particular forests and agriculture and, and other landscapes, were really left off the table. The UN really hadn't brought them into their climate framework properly. The European trading scheme also had excluded those activities and was focusing really exclusively on energy and industrial emissions. And so we thought there was a huge opportunity and need to, to bring that together and start to be able to credit the climate value of intact and restored ecosystems and started to work to realize that what was needed was actually standards. Hey, everybody. This is Armando Davila, co-host of the Earthshot podcast. I have some very special guests today, two uh, senior members from Vera, one of our core institutions in the carbon market. We have David Antonioli, who is a CEO has a long history of running there and has a very wide view of the industry. And we have Toby Jansen-Smith, the Program Development Innovation Officer, who has also spent a lot of time in this carbon market space. We have two very special experts joining us from Vera. And we also have Oliver Miltenberger, who you may remember from season one, who is joining us as a co-host today to have this conversation about carbon markets. Uh, David, please, would you just please introduce, introduce yourself in your own way so that we can get to know you as a person in the world? Thank you, Armando. Thanks a lot for the invitation to speak here. Yes, I'm David Antonioli. I'm the Chief Executive Officer of Vera. I've played that role since uh, 2008 when we started off as the Voluntary Carbon Standard Association. So we've evolved to the Verified Carbon Standard Association and then more recently to Vera um, at a point when we decided that we wanted to, when we had certification programs for carbon, which is our, our VCS program, which is our flagship program, but we've expanded that to include other certifications, uh, mostly for sustainable development. So we have the Sustainable Development Verified Impact Standard. We also manage the Climate Community and Biodiversity Standards. A lot of times those are those are labeled onto uh, carbon credits. And we also recently developed and launched the Plastic Carbon Standard, which is essentially a very similar framework that allows uh, people to invest in projects that prevent plastic waste from being ending up in the environment. So that's what we do. We're a, we're a standard setting organization. We're a nonprofit. We're based in Washington, D.C. Um, and our job is really to, you know, help address environmental and sustainable development challenges through mechanisms that enable the private sector and markets to take hold and be a force for change for good. Thank you so much for that intro, David. Uh, Toby, please introduce yourself. Um, hi, yeah, great to be here. Thanks for inviting us. I'm under Toby Jansen-Smith. I'm the Chief Program Development and Innovation Officer at Vera. I've been with Vera for about nine years um, and have been in the carbon standards and carbon market space for about 23 years with Conservation International prior to joining Vera. Uh, my, my role at Vera is really to ensure that all our various programs that David just mentioned uh, maintain their impact and integrity and can start to drive really scaled up solutions for climate change and sustainable development. And that we're also tapping new innovations, whether they be technological or new emerging activities that can help uh, address some of the issues in a, in a high impact way. Thank you, Toby. And Oliver, please introduce yourself. Hi, great to be back. Oliver Miltenberger here. I'm head of environmental markets at Earthshot, uh, where I lead on fronts around uh, policy, regulation, market design, um, various forms of compliance and, and economics of, of projects. 
Okay, thank you. Thank you for that. Let's let's get into the history of there. You, you touched on it a bit, David. Um, you're a pretty legacy institution, and you, you play a very critical role in this space. So if you could just give us a little bit of an overview of how you came about and why and what's involved and how you've evolved over time to give a sense of your journey. So we were created on 2005. I mean, the Verified Carbon Standard was created or started to be created in 2005 when the steering committee of people related to the emerging carbon markets decided that the volunteer markets really needed some sort of, you know, standard that would ensure integrity in the voluntary markets, which were just starting to kind of evolve and take hold. Um, and so over a couple of years, uh, that steering committee eventually created the voluntary carbon standard. Um, and then at some point in 2007, it created an, org- an organization. It was based in Switzerland at first. Uh, when I took over late in 2008, we made the decision to move the organization to Washington, D.C. And so we managed it as such for a while until we changed the name to the Verified Carbon Standard Association and more recently to Vera. And so really our job is really to write rules and regulations, right? I mean, if you told me you know, 30, 40 years ago, whenever I was in college, that I was going to actually spend most of my time or a big chunk of my professional life writing rules. I've told you that's just crazy. That sounds dreadfully boring. But actually, what we've learned and what I've come to realize and what kind of wakes me up in the morning is that if we do it right and we write rules, procedures, requirements that make sense and enable private capital to flow and generate the kind of integrity that markets need, then you've really hit upon a formula that can that can drive change. So that's really essentially what we do. We're a mission-based organization that has a number of certification programs. And so we constantly evolve them. That's part of what Toby's team does. And he mentioned that. The VCS program today, I think it's on its fourth version. So we have to revise it. And that's a key part of what we do because we can't just you know, write the requirements and put them on a shelf and expect that they're going to be you know, good forever. We have to constantly go back and check to make sure that we're following new scientific evidence, you know, best practices, or a better understanding of a particular problem. And we need to update our rules, we need to update methodologies. So that's a constant part of what we do and why Toby's team is so important and critical to the mission of the organization, because our standards, like everything in the world, need to evolve with markets and best practices and what, you know, kind of what's happening on the ground over time. Thank you so much for that intro. And uh, Toby, please also just jump in with some your history around the climate community benefits work and your history with RED and kind of the evolution of uh, your role in this space. Yeah, sure. Happy to. I personally came from actually um, sort of more of a markets background, um, traditional you know business side, but had a passion for biodiversity conservation. And you know, this is going back 25 years. Started to realize that it was this huge market failure that actually environmental services um, for nature were not being properly valued and compensated for. And as a result, we were losing them intensely and increasingly to market pressures, whether it's um, deforestation for agriculture or development or, or other drivers. And so then became very interested in seeing how we could bring uh, markets to bear to help to value those ecosystem services and to incentivize their protection and restoration. And so started working back in the day about 23, 24 years ago with a lot of the leading NGOs in the US to think how we could do that. And carbon markets were really seen as the um, the most viable, scalable means to achieve that goal. They were just starting to get traction, starting to um, scale in terms of the, the volume of funds and, and action. But 
natural climate solutions, in particular forests and agriculture and, and other landscapes, were really left off the table. The uh, UN really hadn't brought them into their climate framework properly. The European trading scheme also had excluded those activities and was focusing really exclusively on energy and industrial emissions. And so we thought there was a huge opportunity and need to, to bring that together and start to be able to credit the uh, climate value of intact and restored ecosystems um, and started to work to realize that what was needed was actually standards. That became very clear right away that what was going to underpin confidence and finance flowing to the right activities that were driving the right impacts was going to rely fundamentally on standards and the right kinds of integrity being built in. So at that stage, started to work with some of the big NGOs in the US, and we basically created uh, the climate community and biodiversity standards. That was a, uh, a, through a coalition that had already been established with Conservation International, Nature Conservancy, uh, and other groups, um, and including Wildlife Conservation Society, Care International, Rainforest Alliance, etc. And um, basically, over time, uh, we worked with that group and some of the corporate leaders to establish the climate community and biodiversity standards, which would be a way to independently assess the climate, social and environmental and biodiversity benefits that uh, these kinds of projects like forest restoration and conservation in particular could generate, do that in a robust, certifiable, consistent way, and to then give confidence to corporates and others on the demand side that what they were supporting was indeed going to generate the stated climate benefit. So that was the beginning of my journey in terms of climate and sustainable development standards. I'll pause, but if we want to talk a bit about how that transitioned into the work of the VCS and VERA uh, in terms of making this stuff really become mainstream and sort of widely adopted and applied. Yeah, I think that's a, a great intro, actually, to setting the stage for where we are now and what we think the road ahead looks like for these standards, um, you know, these these years of work that you're talking about, developing the infrastructure for markets has been amazing, and and there's been various levels of participation and sort of um, ups and downs uh, in that regard. But it seems like where we're currently sitting, there's a lot of demand that seems inevitable to to start to scale up. Yeah, so I just wonder how how Vera is thinking about this potential to deliver on. The McKenzie report, the the TSVCM report that says 15x by 2030 in terms of uh, market activity and, and valuation, and uh, you know the World Bank came out earlier this year with some estimate of like 1.5 to 3.5 trillion dollars worth of market cap for for carbon pricing. That includes taxes and, and compliance markets, but they they also say voluntary is going to be a big part in that. And so, how, how should we be thinking about Vera um, scaling 15x? Maybe, David, just to start, I could give the bridge to Vera and then you could talk a bit more about the broader context of the market scaling. Could we do that? Great. So just to finish up with CCB, the Climate Community Biodiversity Standards. So that was led by a, an NGO consortium. And then over time, we all realized that actually, to your, to your question, Oliver, to really scale and meet the challenge at the order of magnitude we need to, is going to require a really robust standard setting body organization to be 
you know, laser focused on managing, developing these standards and taking them to the next level. And so that was when the, the this coalition of the leading conservation NGOs basically started to be interested in working with Vera and saying, you know, how could you, Vera, really play your leadership role that you've sort of now established in carbon crediting and carbon markets and expand that into these areas of natural climate solutions. So basically, Vera then, at that point, this is going back, you know, about 15 years ago, the beginning of, of the VCS, um, basically played the leading pioneering role of establishing core constructs that would allow natural climate solutions to be credited. So, for example, addressing permanence through the buffer approach, thinking about you know, off-site impacts and leakage and how you monitor these projects effectively. And over time, bringing together all the leading scientists, academics, and practitioners was able to establish the agriculture, forestry, and other land use framework within the VCS and start to manage that in a very professional standards body kind of way uh, with all the infrastructure for the registry, with all the, the staffing and the capacity that's needed and being an independent mission-based nonprofit, like David said. So this is a, a, a nonprofit organization that is focused on climate impact. So that was the beginning really of this, this ability to scale um, in these new sectors like uh, forestry and agriculture, energy, industrial um, and led to the underpinning of you know, the robust carbon markets you see today. But we're now at this next stage, which I'll hand off to David, which is like, to your point, Oliver, we need to still 10x this to the next level. And we're at this inflection point, and we all have this calling to help make that happen. And so the question is, how do we do that? And how do we all collaborate to make sure you know, what we get to is, is going to tackle this really intense challenge and crisis the world is facing? Yeah. I mean, I guess you know, one really important piece of this is that, yeah, the markets are growing. There's no doubt about that. And there's pressures on us, right, to be able to deliver the reviews and everything. But it's also making us rethink and reconsider how we kind of our internal processes, the kind of tracking systems we have, even the kinds of methodologies we approve and how we approve them and how they're structured so as to enable the flow of capital through the system. And so those are all, you know, kind of systemic um, concepts that we're, that we're considering and we're, we're improving over time. And I don't, I mean, people say, oh, 10X or 15X. Well, yeah, I mean, but that's not going to happen tomorrow, right? We need to have time to kind of adjust and retool and rethink how we actually create and manage the programs over time. Um, and I think that, you know, I mean, if it, if it were all to happen tomorrow, that would be pretty untenable because we don't have the systems to manage that capacity. But I think over time we will, and I think we're starting to, you know, right now we're going through a particular crunch where there's a lot of projects in the system and we're starting to figure out how we can actually manage the process in a more effective and efficient and transparent manner, which should give uh, market players confidence. But one thing that's really important to consider and I think, you know, the, the audience might might feel this is that it's not just about scaling finance for carbon projects. That's great. That's wonderful. But we need to really make sure that on the back of that, that all of that work is complementing internal reductions by corporates. Right. It's great that we have an offset market. Um, it's great that it's growing but we can't offset our way to a solution. It's got to be a complement to further action. And I think that's something that often gets lost when people talk about carbon markets because people can you know, look at carbon markets and, and maybe pick it apart. But if you don't look at the broader context of what carbon markets and the voluntary market is doing to provide the signals 
and the opportunity for corporates to go beyond what they would have otherwise done, then we've missed a real beat. And I think that's where the opportunity lies. And I think ultimately what I get, and one of the things I get very excited about is that if we can make that be very accessible to corporates, then there will eventually be essentially a, a, a shadow obligation on corporates, right? To do the right thing, which is to make internal reductions and to offset for residual emissions. If we can achieve that, then the volunteer market will have created this market and this this uh, obligation on on you know the corporate world to go beyond what it's doing, which is ultimately what the volunteer market is doing, and that can be very powerful for driving the change that we need because we know that it's very challenging for governments to force us on on corporates on the private sector. So the volunteer market, I think, is positioned in a really unique way to drive the change or one of the big changes that we need to really get on top of the problem. In the morning. When I get up, I wish that we could stop and take each day. In the evening, when I get home, always hope to find you all alone and out of harm's way. Every time I look around, I hope to find you looking back at me. You're everything I ever hope to see In the morning when I get up I wish that we could stop and take each day In the evening when I get home Always hope to find you all alone and out of harm's way Thank you for actually bringing that up because one one intention I have for this episode is to just kind of catch some of our audience along with this process who aren't as deeply embedded or familiar with. I, I think, Toby, you had some great talking points on what this carbon market is doing, how it's facilitating climate action. The popular discourse I've, I hear, and even just recently I was in Montreal and COP15, that it's a delay and a deflection mechanism that came up again on a panel that I was at. So if you could give us some like right framing on like, what is a carbon market? What is it doing? Why is it great? That'd be awesome. Sure. Yeah, happy to. And building on what David said, you know, first and foremost, we need direct direct action within our economy, right? So it's with if you think about the big emission sources, whether it's uh, electricity generation, transportation, industrial processes, we have to first and foremost focus to decarbonize those sectors, those industries, as far and fast as we can. And a lot of that work is happening already, right? If you think about new technologies with uh, electrification, with cars, with batteries, um, if you think about you know cleaner power plants and 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 fuel sources, if you think about new industrial processes and efficiencies there. So, so there's tremendous already progress being made there, and we need more finance and more action on that front for sure. But that's where it needs to start. That's the biggest uh, you know, direct lever we can tackle, and we need to tackle those things directly. Having said that, no matter what you do in terms of a sector or a business's footprint, like let's take an energy-intensive company, there's always going to be residual emissions that you cannot eliminate. And so even if you electrify all your, your sources and you switch to electric transportation, you still right now have fossil fuels within the grid to some extent, even if it's natural gas, you know, it's going to be around for a while. Um, 
you think about employee air travel, you know, an area that's really hard to decarbonize right now. Basically, carbon markets are just one slice, as David mentioned, of, of the climate solution. Um, and first and foremost, we have to focus on direct emissions that are coming from our economy and from business footprints. And if we think about, you know, industrial sectors, whether they be carbon intensive or not, uh, we have to squeeze out all of the carbon where possible. So a lot of that's from electrification. Uh, so whether that's in transportation or the processes we need to electrify uh, or, you know, change our energy mix um, increasingly to or as fast as possible to renewables. So that then electrification on the back end, like e-cars and so forth and other processes start to be greener and greener because currently, uh, you know, e-cars, et cetera, are powered a lot by fossil fuel um, sources on the grid. And so, you know, until we address both sides, we're not going to get to where we need to. Uh, then there's industrial processes with uh, companies. A lot of those can generate um, significant greenhouse gas emissions, for example, from the cement sector and from, from other processes. And then transportation just generally, including air travel, uh, vehicles, and private transport and, and public. And so basically the way carbon markets fit into that is to tackle the part that cannot be addressed directly. So if you think about where we need to get to as a 1.5 degree uh, constrained future so that global emissions um, are capped, so that our uh, rise in temperatures post-industrial don't exceed 1.5 degrees, it's going to be a tremendous challenge. We need to first and foremost have all of industry and businesses uh, squeeze out all the carbon from their own direct emissions and supply chains, so where they're sourcing from as well in all their products and how their products are used. Um, and then after that's been done, there still is going to be about 10 to 15 percent of emissions that in the next decade plus are not going to be able to be eliminated from that from that approach. And that's where carbon markets become really critical and essential to get to where we need to with climate action. And what climate markets can also do is actually tackle sectors that are not going to be picked up through any direct action from companies or from existing policies. So if, for example, you take uh, tropical deforestation as an example, or regenerative agriculture, uh, those are areas where, in, say, tropical deforestation, there's very limited funding to support those activities. And that's why we're still losing a massive amount. Basically, the, the amount of deforestation ha has not gone down significantly over the last decade. Uh, it's a huge climate and biodiversity crisis, because as you cut and clear those forests, the carbon in the trees end up you know, being burned or otherwise oxidizing and end up as CO2 in the atmosphere, accounts for anywhere from 10 to 15% of global emissions. Um, and carbon markets are critical for tackling that kind of a sector, that there's no direct industrial incentive or even government incentive to slow it down. There's very little donor and other philanthropic finance. But carbon markets, if they're designed correctly and they use the right kinds of standards that Vera and others pioneer, we can actually quantify the climate value of those standing forests, we can measure and monitor what or assess what would have happened without carbon finance to support the conservation of those projects. And then we can use those incentives from carbon credit sales to pay local communities, indigenous peoples, local governments, landowners, et cetera, to conserve those forests rather than being compelled to clear them. And so the, the beauty of carbon markets is twofold. One is that it enables us to get to this 1.5 degree you know, climate stable future because we cannot squeeze all the emissions out just directly through corporate and business action. And secondly, it allows us to tackle sectors like land use in particular that really will not get covered through other climate action incentives. So in those two areas, it's really a unique opportunity to get to where we need to. I would add just one more 
one more thing to that. I think that was a great explanation. The other thing that carbon markets can do is they can help to jumpstart finance for new activities or new technologies, right? So you see this especially in the removals, a lot of discussion around removals, but those technologies are really expensive and they take time. So if it's talking about reforestation, that's the kind of project Toby was describing, right? Great kinds of projects, but they take a long time, take a lot of tender loving care to keep the trees growing over time. So you need a lot of dedicated attention. When you're looking at technologies like director capture, it's horribly expensive to make happen. And there's no economic rationale for making it happen on its own. Carbon markets can help jumpstart that financing to make those technologies take hold and grow eventually. And that's another really key role carbon markets could play in the broader decarbonization uh, pathway that we're on. I'm kind of curious to, uh, uh, we're, we're talking about um, this sort of broader picture of, of climate action and a need to change business as usual and a need to bring a lot of different tools into the mix, including voluntary carbon markets. But as, as you're probably aware of having worked in the space for a while, the demand side sort of needs are a rationale themselves for acting. And more and more you're seeing governments and industry bodies setting up policy for use of, of voluntary carbon credits. And so I, I wonder what your perspective is in terms of government involvement into the future and whether or not you're already liaising with governments to try and you know, set up policies that make sense based off of your years of experience and, and you know, the tools that exist in markets already and, and where you're seeing it you know, five years from now in terms of credit use and, and what's going to be driving that demand side of the market. Yeah, there's a, there's a few pieces to that. So kind of on the most immediate examples of that, you know, we see governments kind of looking towards the VCS program and other accepted, you know, greenhouse gas crediting programs and saying, hey, we like what you do. We'll, we'll incorporate it into our regulations. So we already have um, the government of Colombia and South Africa have carbon taxes. And actually what those governments have done is said, look, if you use, if you surrender a carbon credit, you can avoid paying the carbon tax. And so that industry likes that um, because it allows them potentially to pay a bit less than the tax if they can get the carbon credit at a lower price. But really importantly, it gives them confidence that their dollars, that their, that their money is going to a real activity they can see on the ground. That is tremendously valuable, right? It adds a whole level of transparency. And so in that sense, I think we're seeing a lot of uh, interest by other governments to kind of leverage the infrastructure that we've built. And we see it also in the context of the UNFCCC, where Article 6.2 would allow trades, uh, bilateral trades across countries. And as long as they agree on the rules that are being used to create the units, you know, the countries will be fine with that. And many countries are looking towards the VCS program and other other programs to kind of be the backstop on the underlying foundation for what those trades are like. The other question, which you're, I think you're getting at, Oliver, has to do with what are governments going to do in respect of regulating the claims that companies can make when they're taking on voluntary action and they're involved with the voluntary carbon market. And, you know, we are starting to see, such as the, you know, the Securities and Exchange Commission here in the U.S. is starting to take an active role in looking at, well, what are the claims that companies are making? And I think that's good because I think ultimately what we've seen and it's one of the reasons I think carbon markets are, are questioned a lot is that there are a variety of claims that companies make when they use carbon markets and they're not all consistent. And, you know, it lends itself to the accusation that this is all just greenwashing. 
So I think that government attention, uh, potentially regulation about what kinds of claims companies can make when they're using carbon credits. Ideally, again, going back to our earlier point, if companies have a net zero target and they're performing against it and they're using carbon credits to help meet that target or, or addressing the residual emissions, that's the sweet spot. That's where we want to drive things to. I think that could be very powerful. But there does need to be a better, a more common understanding of the kinds of claims that companies are making. And, and there's also, I think this is really important to mention, there's also a kind of an industry initiative. It's called the Voluntary Carbon Markets Integrity Initiative, which is designed around helping to define what kinds of claims companies can make when they are buying and retiring carbon offsets. And I think that's been a long time coming. We really need that to give the market the confidence it needs. But I think it could be very powerful. And that could be, it doesn't necessarily need to rely on government regulation. But if we're all clear on what a certain term means, like carbon neutrality or or being climate friendly, if we're all agreed on what those terms mean, if a company is doing something else and claiming that, then the regulatory agency could come after them, right? And I think that's very powerful. So I'm not sure if it needs a proper kind of law per se, but if there's a common understanding of what kinds of claims you could make and you're following those rules, then you should be fine. And that, I think, goes going back to another point we made before. If we make this simple for the private sector to follow, that's going to be very powerful because right now, a lot of folks are saying, well, hang on a bit. I don't know what to do. I don't know what kinds of claims I can make on this side of the ledger, on the demand side. So I'm not going to do anything because I don't want to get called out. And there is also a debate happening on what kinds of credits I can make. And we can get into that if you want. I'm happy to talk about that. But if we can clarify those two pieces and make it simple and clear for corporates to take action, I think there's enough momentum right now in the world, in the markets, that essentially looks at corporates and say, hey, what are you doing? about climate change. And if we make sure that that's all very clear, I think we'll see more action. We'll see more action to address climate from a, you know companies getting on top of their footprint and reducing their emissions internally, but also we'll see more action in terms of the current markets, which will make them grow. Yeah, just to put a little bit of a story to that, I was talking to my old neighbor and he went on a flight and the flight, I don't remember what the airline was, said that they offset this plane ride. And he was like, did you really? And then they didn't like give any justifying information. So basically like there's the corporates need to understand what claims to make. And then consumers responding to those corporates, you know, consumers need to under have like faith and integrity in those claims because some of what we're dealing with in terms of the perceived integrity of the market is, as you said, the corporate claims, which are less regulated than everything else in the market, but they're the people financing it. And then they're, they're subject to consumer will to some extent. And the consumers are like, are you, is that true? Does that really add up? Is the math there? And then lacking shared frameworks and understanding to kind of like navigate all that information. Yeah, I mean, certainly the integrity part has to start with the standards, right? And that's what we work on in Vera and pay, you know, very close attention to are always evolving and improving. We're actually at version 4.0, you know, and we have many in-between versions in the VCS, which is, you know, the leading carbon credit, carbon accounting and crediting, you know, platform globally accounts for about 80% of all carbon credits issued. So we have a lot of responsibility at Vera to make sure, to your point, Armando, that the integrity is fundamentally, first and foremost, at the project level. And then we can talk about the corporate side a bit more. But but if a company is investing and, and saying they're supporting a particular climate action, this particular emission reduction or, or impact, everyone needs to know that 
what they're saying and the underlying project is indeed credible and generates those kinds of benefits. So our standards do that. So they basically quantify the emission reductions and removals based on the particular activity, uh, whether it's energy, industrial, land-based, technologically-based, um, quantify that, use independent verification by independent auditors, uh, public consultations, and other checks and balances to then ensure that what's being said is generated on the ground actually is being delivered. And then that ends up as a carbon credit in our registry, and we can ensure there's no double counting so that two corporates or others don't use the same claim or the same you know, carbon benefit twice. We can ensure that those carbon credits are retired. So if a, a corporate, for example, is using them as a part of its carbon neutral or net zero commitments, that when that happens, those credits are retired so that they never see the light of day again. They were used as a, as a, as a part of a commitment and, and that's now off the table. So we, we take good care of that from our side. Um, but what we're talking about here a lot of is also how do corporates talk about their use of offsets. And as you point out, Amanda, if, some, if a corporate is making a claim that they're net zero or carbon neutral or the flight is, is you know, net zero or something, everyone wants to and needs to know that what underpins that. The first thing is the standards that we're talking about with the projects. And the second thing is how does the accounting from the corporate footprint side add up? So knowing that, for example, the emissions from that flight or from an industrial process or factory or whatever or product is fully accounted for. And not just accounted for in a narrow way, like just what is coming out of a tailpipe uh, from the plane, but also what is went into making that plane and all the raw materials, you know, the, the, the steel, the manufacturing, the transportation of those materials. So that's increasingly where the world is focusing on is what they call scope three emissions, which is basically looking at the, the whole value chain and supply chain of these products, of these services, and saying that we need to account for all the embedded carbon, we need to reduce that, squeeze it out to the full extent possible, like I was saying earlier. And then if there are residual emissions, like there will be with aviation fuel, for example, how do we mitigate that through carbon markets and very robust uh, and, and high integrity projects that we can ensure through our standards really are delivering what they're saying. And I think if we do all those things and we shine the right lights on this and we hold each party accountable for each step in that process, we can get to where we need to, but it is a working process. Um, and we're always improving and the corporate's improving, the transparency improving. And so we need people asking those kinds of tough questions. Um, and as David said, there's more and more integrity initiatives out there that are also bringing together the leading players to make sure this is dialed in. And I think we will get there. Um, and we're a bit in this sort of like uh, stage of, of the ambition is there, the intention is there. And then we're kind of working out some of the last kinks to, to make sure this scales in the right way. It's always assuring to hear that um, the, the sort of issues that we're running into in our, our project development process at Earthshot are, are you know, similarly identified at the, the standard level. And in my mind, a lot of the critiques that have gone into carbon markets, I, I think, have been misconstrued as being critiques of the project that's issuing the credit and, and the quality of, of reporting necessarily. I mean, there's always exceptions to the rule, but I, th I think that a lot of the critiques have been misconstrued on the demand side or, or on the claim side, I should say, of the credit rather than the actual supply side of the credit, where the green pieces of the world are getting upset that corporates are making certain claims based off the credit, not necessarily that put, putting money into forest conservation is bad or that it should have you know, been better conservation outcomes or something like that. But I, I would be curious in that, in that same vein is where do you see the most valid critiques in the market today? And what's, 
what's Vera doing about them? And, and also curious, like, where is there a valid critique that Vera can't necessarily address from inter internally and, and somebody else needs to get involved? Sure. I, th I think there's two parts to that. Um, and I think there are some valid critiques on some project types in the market. But I think that the debate about integrity has allowed us to to ignore another really important part of that. And I'll come back to that, maybe have Toby talk about kind of those issues related to kind of additionality and, and, and baselines. But one thing that I find really important is that we need to make sure we don't overlook one real problem, which is that there's a lot of confusion out there in the market. And you know, you've got a number of different crediting programs. You've got the VCS program, you've got the gold standard, you've got the American Carbon Registry, you've got the Climate Action Reserve, you've got Plan Vivo. And one of the challenges that we've seen is that you know, people from the outside look at this and say, well, hang on a bit. How do I know that the carbon credit issued by one organization is the same thing as the one issued by another organization? So, and it's complicated, right? What we do, I mean, Toby mentioned we're on the fourth version of the VCS program. We just issued today another program update with more rules and requirements setting out, you know, things we find are important that need to be embedded. And these are kinds of things that you can look at from afar and actually compare across the programs, but someone does need to do that because otherwise it'll just be, you know, one, the word of one versus the other. And, and it's, and that's not going to be helpful. And not that we would say that, but, but ultimately what you need is somebody that can look at the programs independently and say, look, I've looked under the hood. I've checked these programs and they actually have credible approaches for dealing with critical, important issues like, do they assess additionality properly? Are they overseeing the auditors effectively? Does their registry prevent double counting and provide the transparency the market needs? So there is actually an initiative that's trying to do that. It's called the Integrity Council for Voluntary Carbon Markets. And full disclosure, I sit on, on the board of that. I'm, I'm a non-voting representative and I represent, represent the supply side of the market. But that initiative is trying to create what they're calling core carbon principles that make sure that the greenhouse gas crediting programs that operate in the market that meet a certain threshold of performance, if you will, can get only those can get a label, can get the, the core carbon principle label. And I think that will be very important. There is another example where we've seen that done before, and that was done by the International Civil Aviation Organization under CORSIA, which is the Carbon Offsetting and Reduction Scheme for International Aviation. And they, again, looked at, I think, 23 different programs, right, crediting programs or entities that claimed they had crediting programs. And they said, actually, only a few of those actually meet our rules. And those are the ones that can be used for offsetting within the context of international aviation, within the, the requirements set out for international aviation under ICAO. Um, and so that's a similar model to what the ICBCM is going to do or trying to do. And if it can do that effectively and credibly, then that whole issue about confusion, which I think drives a lot of debate about integrity, can be put to bed. And people will say, oh, actually, you know, a carbon credit from the VCS program is the same thing as a carbon credit from the gold standard. It's the same thing as, as something from the Climate Action Reserve. And I think that will be really valuable to the market. Going back to my previous point about making it easy for corporates to engage, right? If they know that, oh, actually, here are the programs that meet these requirements, I'm comfortable. I can buy any of them. Yes, they may be different. They may be different kinds of project types. They may have different flavors, if you will. But in the end of the day, it's giving me an emission reduction that I can basically take to my 
inventory and use against my inventory and use to further the drive climate change. I think that could be very important. So again, just back to what I was trying to say is that the debate about integrity, I think, has has, has overshadowed the concerns about confusion, which I think are equally important and will help to provide, once we solve that, we'll be able to focus on the right things from the integrity side of things. And we can then get to a point where people have much more confidence in the market. I can maybe provide a few direct examples of, of some of those pain points or areas of in- integrity that we are really focused on and that sometimes get criticized and um, a light shine on. So, you know, a couple that, that come up very frequently and a, a core to any carbon crediting or carbon market is uh, additionality and baselines. So additionality is basically the concept that if you're going to provide a carbon credit for a particular emission reduction or removal activity, you have to be able to demonstrate that that activity or the associated reduction or removal would not have occurred without carbon finance. So meaning it wouldn't have happened anyways. So if, for example, a particular activity, uh, let's say an industrial process, made economic sense, the company was going to do it anyways, or there was some tree planting program that was already required by law in urban forestry or something, or a restoration project. If that was going to happen anyways, without carbon finance, you cannot and should not get carbon credits for that, because that's not an additional benefit to the climate. So what standards like ours, the Verified Carbon Standards, do is they have very tight requirements about demonstrating additionality, and you don't issue carbon credits until that's been you know, proven to a to a you know to a, a very strong um, degree, and what we do as standard setters, we're always, as David said, with these new versions, we're always tightening and figuring out where are certain sectors or activities needing additional rules and requirements or constraints. So, for example, renewable energy. It used to be that you know a number of years ago. Um, renewable energy in many parts of the world was needed a lot of additional help. Uh, and carbon markets and carbon finance were critical catalysts uh, to starting and jump-starting some of that work, like David said, supporting new technologies, new approaches, faster than would otherwise happen. Um, and so we used to credit renewable energy activities. And then a few years ago, basically, after a deep analysis of this, we determined that in most countries, except the least developed, Grid-connected renewables really had enough incentives um, and motivation to achieve them and deploy that that, that infrastructure. 
and develop renewable projects without the need for carbon finance. And so basically we made an, a, a rule change across our entire program that basically said that these kinds of projects, new projects, new renewable projects, uh, were no longer creditable under our standards. So that's an example where it, over time things shift and we as standard setters have to make sure we're at the forefront of making sure things are being tightened and appropriate rules are always you know, ahead of of where things are needed or where the technologies are headed. So that's an example of additionality. And I can talk about baselines too, but I think all of you had a comment you wanted to make. Yeah, I, mean, I think you bring up a really fascinating point about additionality. Um, you know, a, lo a lot of the, the scholarship that I do is, is looking at how do we improve markets and how, do, how might they change uh, over time? And in my mind, and I've heard, I've heard others articulate it this way, almost as um, a critique, but uh, at some point, if, if carbon markets are effectively um, changing business as usual to be more climate friendly um, and, and more and more groups are taking action on this because it's required for, to achieve climate targets, um, additionality kind of starts to fade away, right? It starts to, uh, I, I don't know, change, change uh, the threshold in terms of being a carbon project, a creditable carbon project versus just being an activity that needs to happen. Um, and, and in, in that way, I think taking a step back, carbon markets can be seen as sort of a, I think, uh, David, you actually sort of started articulating it like this, but it's a transition mechanism for a lot of different sectors where you're helping to just finance changes that we want to start to have happen. I don't know if there's really a question there, but, um, I think it's just it, like in all of these critiques and all of these elements of carbon markets. And, and the standards that, that operate there, um, you know, th there's th those those things aren't permanent. They're not. They're subject to change as climate action uh, keeps going. I mean, I just wanted to add one more thing on on that additionality piece because it's one of my favorite topics. And Toby will roll his eyes because I talk about this all the time. But you know, I'm a big fan of what I call standardized methods. Um, and if you think about that, it goes back to our previous discussion about how are we making markets scale? Well, one way to do that is by creating much more streamlined and standardized approaches for how you approve projects. So one great example is what we call an activity method or a positive list, where you identify an activity that's not common in the, in the market or in the economy, and you identify it as something that actually needs carbon finance. So you might say, for example, direct air capture is a good one, right? It's not really common. Is it happening? Yes, but very small scale. So you could create what we call a positive list on director capture. And you say, look, we'll drive finance to this through carbon markets up until you reach a certain market penetration, for example. So we set thresholds, right? So you might say 5% penetration is the right penetration that you'd want to measure against. And then once you get the 5%, you can't credit anymore. And that's one thing, going back to your question about integrity, that not a lot of people appreciate. Like at some point, the markets have to work, or they ideally they do work. And then over time, those activities, particularly in this example, where you've got new activities coming into the market, they become common practice or become accepted and they become you know, part of the economy. At that point, you're right, you can't credit them anymore. And so whether they're required by regulation or they're financially you know, viable on their own, like we see with renewable energy, you know, at some point, yeah, carbon crediting as we know today, in terms of avoiding emission reduction emissions, they definitely are a transition. Now, I do want to caveat that by saying over time, when we think about a net zero concept, 
you know, it's essentially net zero means that we're going to have to reduce our emissions anywhere between 85 to 90%, 95% of where we are today. Uh, and we're going to have, you know, maybe anywhere between 5, 10, maybe 15% of emissions that are still happening because we can't completely wean ourselves off of fossil fuels. We'd like to, but it's not likely to happen. Is that your common, your, the, the, like the, the rule that you made for agriculture, where it's like a common practice in the area? Uh, for it to be additional, it has to be a common, a not an uncommon practice for the area as well. Yeah, basically, that's that's essentially how much of the additionality works. Like, and there's in different ways you can you can you can thread the needle. Right? There's ways you can do it through market penetration, whether it's common practice, whether we know that financially it doesn't make sense. So there's different ways of creating those positive lists. But where I was going with that is that you know over time we we know that. At some point, when we get to net zero, hopefully we do by 2050, um, in order to stay within the carbon budget to reach 1.5, we're going to have to have removals. So I think removals have a longer time frame to run as a carbon credit concept because we are going to have to finance those over time and even in, out into the future beyond 2050. Tell us about removals. Not everyone in our audience will be familiar about removals. Oh, yeah. So um, when you think about carbon credits. There's two types. There's an avoidance reduction, which is a project that reduces or prevents an emission from happening in the first place, right? So think of a forest that you're conserving. If you don't conserve that forest, that tree will get cut down, it'll oxidize and land up in the atmosphere. So if you protect that forest, you have an avoided emission. Likewise, if you think about a landfill gas project, you're capturing that landfill gas and destroying it before it goes to the atmosphere is methane. Right, that's an avoidance. Then removals are projects that actually, or uh, reductions that actually draw atmospheric carbon out of the atmosphere. So tree planting, direct or capture. So those are very different. And what I'm saying is that avoidance reductions, you know, if the economies are responding to the stimuli of you know getting to net zero and meeting the targets of the Paris Agreement. We will no longer need avoidance reductions in the future, in the long-term future. Right now, it's not happening at all, right? There's nobody paying to, for, to protect the forest generally, as Toby mentioned before. There's very little financial incentives for people to, to actually reduce emissions. So we need that's where carbon credits are such a powerful tool that can be activated today. Over time, that should fall off, but we'll still have a need for removals in the long term because we will need that even when we get to net zero in 2050. Those avoidances though, there, there is controversy around using them, right? Because there's there's no real counterfactual around crediting them. Um, so that the baselining is something that, that people will critique sometimes. I can take that one if you want, because that's, that's a key thorny issue for sure. So absolutely, baselines is another key issue, meaning that you know whatever you get credited for against what would have happened uh, or, or is only happening with the carbon finance. So you have to say what would have happened had the carbon project not occurred. So let's just take uh, avoided deforestation. That's a classic one that is very tricky. So if you've got in the developing world, you've got forests that are at risk, are continuing to be lost, and that's the history of of, of those regions and those areas. Um, and we are trying to figure out, or the, the standard and the independent assessors need to figure out how much that conserve, conserving that forest, how many credits should be uh, awarded to that project. You basically have to figure out, as you say, a counterfactual of what would have happened had the project not taken place, the carbon project not taking place. And the way it's currently done is you look at reference regions, which we call as area, analogous areas that are similar to the project area, and you say, here's what happened historically. 
uh, without any interventions, you know, in terms of agricultural pressure, clearing for development and infrastructure and mining, et cetera. And then you basically map it across and you say, okay, here's what is most likely going to happen. And that becomes your baseline. That is challenging um, because it's not always easy to find the right area and really to say this is what would have happened and how it all adds up is tricky. So what we're moving towards now, we, we've recently announced this, and within two years, all of our, our crediting of avoided deforestation projects will go in this direction, is basically you, you look at the whole large-scale jurisdictional area, so basically the whole country or the region, and you basically figure out historic deforestation that has, has, has got robust data for, and you project that, or in this case, you just take an average, conservative average of the historic um, trend, or sorry, the historic average of emissions. And you basically use that as a jurisdictional um, baseline, and then you allocate it to the projects based on their specific risk of deforestation in that local area. And that is, we believe, and uh, others in the space, NGOs, academics, et cetera, and folks who pay attention to integrity, that this is the right approach. Because basically, for one, it will make sure that you have a fixed pie at the government or the jurisdictional and, and country level that's being allocated. And secondly, it will be very transparent in terms of like how each project area calculated its baseline. And thirdly, going back to an earlier comment about the links to policy and government, this is also a way to actually start to get these project activities to align and harmonize and support government objectives. So you're starting to now tie in the two systems, the project interventions, as well as government policies and programs. And so increasingly, a lot of our projects, of VCS projects, they're either restoring forests or conserving forests, are working hand in glove with governments, with indigenous peoples, to actually figure out the large scale transformational change that needs to happen and how you achieve that through policies, through programs and through projects. But all these things need to come together. It isn't an or, it's an and. And this new approach to baselines will help accelerate that sort of integration with government action as well as projects. Thank you for that context. Um, I'd like to bring up uh, some questions. Um, I was talking to this woman, Atosa, from the Sacred Headwaters Project and was just in Montreal for COP15. And Atosa had this issue where the Sacred Headwaters Project has about 86 million acres of land that they're trying to protect. And there isn't a ton of historical deforestation happening on their land, but the, but the community is at risk of people approaching them for different kinds of projects in the future. And they're, they're feeling a bit stranded because they, they have more future risk than they have historic risk. And at some point, some of these, one of these, you know, miners or logging companies or carbon cowboys is going to approach this community and their, their ability to kind of protect their own forests and manage these, these offers and give these rejections is going to wear out and they're going to say yes to something. And um, she's in a bit of a difficult position trying to protect her community and also navigate their needs in this emerging world space. Yeah, it's a great point. And we're starting to see this more and more. And, and as carbon markets have grown and matured, we're starting to hear this very story, right? Like, hey, hang on a bit. My my area has actually been protected. We've been doing the right thing for generations. But how come, A, we're not benefiting from all this finance? And what happens when there's that future risk happening? So, and it goes back to Oliver's question, right, about the baseline. And red reduced emissions from avoided deforestation, avoided degradation, works when you have a credible, present, and imminent threat. When it's there, you can say, look, you know, this is a historical rate of deforestation. It's going to happen over here, and we can actually help drive finance. But the more you move away from that, 
the more risk you have that you're going to start to credit stuff that isn't creditable under a carbon crediting context, right? So what we're starting to find is that there's a lot of, in particular, indigenous communities um, in the tropics, but also in other places saying, hey, you know, we've been doing the right thing for generations. Why can't we benefit from this? And, and, it, and you know, and in a perfect world, they would. And so one of the things that we're trying to do is create, and Toby can talk about this more, we're creating, starting to create, we're calling a kind of a, a framework to value nature. That's not necessarily a carbon credit or an offset per se, but it's a way to value the biodiversity and nature benefits that we have around the world and locally by protecting and making sure that intact ecosystems remain or are strengthened. And that's really important, but that may not necessarily be a carbon credit play as we know it today. Um, and I think it's really important that we're, that we're mindful that we're not throwing everything into the same bag because ultimately, you know, red again, makes sense, but in a certain context and with certain set of data and beyond that, if you start to stretch it too much, you will lose credibility and we'll, we'll lose that market because people won't trust it. So I think that's really important, but I think it's really equally important that we start to create the understanding that there's value in nature as it is in places where they may not, where there may not be an immediate threat of deforestation, but there's value in protecting it nonetheless and, and providing sustainable livelihoods to the people who live in and around those forests. Toby, do you want to add anything? Yeah, no, it's all great points. I, I think that, as you say, David, ultimately we have to be careful that you know if, we, if we're looking at climate action and climate impact, that is what that standard needs to assess first and foremost, and really just fundamentally. And that's what we do with the VCS. So it's all about the carbon impact with the right additionality, baselines, quantification, monitoring, etc. When we talk about some of these other benefits, whether they be social, environmental, biodiversity, environmental justice, et cetera, they're all super critical, water access, et cetera, super critical. Um, but we need to be careful to make sure we're, we're, we're using the right approaches, the right standards to assess those and that we incentivize them also appropriately. Um, and what we do in Vera is we have now a, a portfolio of standards that start to get to some of these other issues. And sometimes they're used separately and sometimes the standards are used together on a given project. So one example is we talked a bit about the climate community and, and biodiversity standards. And I'll, I'll mention a little bit about that. And then I'll talk about another one that David was mentioning with the nature framework. But on the climate community and biodiversity standards, for example, those standards can be used in land-based projects um, and can assess the community benefits of the carbon project. So they can be layered on top of the BCS carbon credit, and they can show and independently assess that local communities are benefiting from the project with new livelihoods, with new technologies, school infrastructure, you know, access uh, to services, et cetera. Um, and those kinds of benefits uh, can be quantified and actually independently verified, including around climate resiliency and climate change adaptation. And increasingly, a lot of the carbon projects where possible, they're adding on that standard to the core carbon standard. So that they're saying, we care about carbon, we're going to quantify that, but we also care about local communities, about economic justice, about indigenous rights. And we not only are going to say we're doing that, we want and need that independently verified. So to go back to your question, Armando, about greenwashing, we don't want people just making up these claims. We need to have them verified through standards. So our standards, our complementary standards, like climate, community, and biodiversity standards help do that. 
And then increasingly, we're expanding our standards to cover new areas, like David mentioned about nature and biodiversity. So we have a new framework that is being developed under our Sustainable Development Verified Impact Standard, which is another standard that we manage and developed. Um, and that nature framework is basically going to be developed with all the leading conservation groups, academics, practitioners, governments. And it's basically going to be a framework for assessing projects that conserve and restore biodiversity and other ecological value. And by doing that, we can actually bring a focus just on that area, not carbon, but it's biodiversity. And it's looking at how do you value biodiversity in a consistent way around the globe for terrestrial and marine and other ecosystems? How do you quantify that in a unitized way? How do you make sure that whatever gains are permanently or maintained over the long term? And then how do you think about using those claims into some value proposition? So for example, we're seeing a lot of demand from corporates or a growing demand to think about becoming nature positive. So a company might say it has a global footprint um, across its value chain of, of X number of hectares or acres, and it wants to not only mitigate carbon and become net zero in carbon, but it also wants to mitigate its land footprint and say that around the world, it is restoring and conserving biodiversity in these critical ecosystems. And they need, and we need standards to be able to do that. So that's what we're developing. And, and we have now working groups, advisory groups working on that. And within a year, we'll have a framework that starts to do that very thing. It gets to a core, a core topic across the board is quality of the credit and, and what are you actually, what, what is encompassed by a single credit that comes out of a project and it's lots of different things, right? Um, in many ways, the projects that, that we work with and that have been set up successfully before, they're, they're sustainable development projects that just happen to have a carbon benefit at the end of it. Um, but, but it's become such a big discussion and, and Dave, David, you were saying, yeah, it's, it's gotten confusing with just how many different um, bodies out there are trying to assess and, um, and, and make statements about what is quality versus what is not quality. Uh, and, and I just wonder how, how you're thinking about um, the projects that are coming into the, the pipeline, how, how you can support them in also relaying that quality. Because it, currently, one of the issues that we run into at Earthshot is that it's hard to kind of convince upfront investors that these are going to have all of the quality impacts that 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 we're designing for and and thus would fetch a higher credit price on the market once it goes out and and, and we, we just we, we're working with a few other uh, industry bodies like the the credit uh, the Silveras and Calix global and and, and B zeros to to start to think about like how, how do we how do we report on something like that upfront like before the project actually gets up and running. 
Well, yeah, I'll give you an example. Um, back from my days working under the CDM, when I was I was leading a joint venture that was uh, working on landfill gas projects. So we were going around the world looking for landfills, figuring where we could invest in, in technology to recover the landfill gas, destroy it, and ideally generate electricity. And at one point, I got reports back from our projects, and I was like, it was the, the, the emission reductions were really low compared to what we had estimated. And I went into the CDM website, and I looked and saw that actually of all the projects in the world that were landfill gas projects, they were issuing about 15, like 1.5% of the estimated emission reductions that they, you know, calculated at the very beginning. And the reality in, is that, you know, when push comes to shove and you have to put workers on the ground and make things happen, things get complicated. And I say that because ultimately, like you mentioned, these projects are development projects, a lot of them, especially in natural climate solutions types of projects, they're complicated. Right. You may think you're going to protect the entire forest, but when you go out and measure it, you actually, you know, maybe you weren't able to protect all of that forest because it's hard. And there's been deforestation coming through the region and you weren't able to stop those folks who actually were doing some illegal timber cutting. Um, and it's hard. And so when you're looking at things up front, it's hard to be able to make those 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 determinations in a you know, in, in such a way, because over time. It's the implementation that really counts. I do think that over time we'll see this get improved and we'll start to see project types to be much more effective. Like take reforestation, for example. You probably have a good sense of what you would get if all the trees grew, but you're not going to have all the trees grow because some of them are going to die. And project developers tend to be pretty optimistic, right? Think, okay, I'm going to plant 100 trees, 100 trees are going to grow. And so sometimes there's just a little bit of reality that needs to kind of filter into the process. And I think we'll get there over time, particularly as a market scale. And, you know, people will be able to identify like, oh, this developer or this project type actually has a pretty good track record at delivering what they say they were going to do. And I think that's going to count for a lot. We're about to issue or launch a new product called the the, the projected carbon unit. That's going to be an, uh, a unit that sits on our registry based on the projections that you're going to make on the future reductions you're going to achieve. And I think we'll see kind of by adding that, that ability to have a unit, once those start to generate, what, what happens is that you issue we we launch we uh, we assign a PCU at the time a project is registered, and that PCU automatically transfers into a, ver a verified carbon unit, a VCU, when you verify against you know the requirements. So you know you will start to see over time that that projects will be much more diligent about estimating their emission reductions, being more realistic. And I think that will be good. That will give them the market confidence it needs to make those early investments. Yeah. I'm Something that was coming up a lot at COP15 in Montreal was uh, Indigenous communities wanting to have more agency and power in the nature and biodiversity space, uh, restoration conservation projects, this whole emergence of biodiversity credits. Um, I heard one person was talking to me about how there's like a large history of human rights abuses in red projects. Uh, I heard stories about not enough money getting to the ground, like the community being promised a certain amount, but not getting delivered kind of the finances. I've heard other issues about like low wages in the carbon projects, which is probably beyond your scope. Um, and then like there's different ranges of equity benefit sharing agreements. 
And so significant amount of energy coming from the not corporate sector in this space was around the kind of like social and environmental ethics in the distribution and production of these projects. And then I'd be kind of curious to see where you sit in relationship to those things. Like some of it is a development paradigm. Some of it is the quality of the implementation, how well the meeting is run. One of the researchers I spoke to was like really putting a strong emphasis that like there needs to be a social infrastructure to carry these ecosystems and to carry uh, the biodiversity gains. And then similarly, I'm just going to attack another thing on that. I've just been personally wondering about in terms of this kind of uh, proving proving harm and kind of uh, the benefits to a potential project. I've, I've been wondering why, um, like when indigenous pe- people are being attacked for defending their land and are being killed and such, like why that can't be counted as like proof of forest being at risk. Yeah, I, I, let me just say first that while I think there may be some cases where, you know, people might have felt aggrieved, I, I think that's a minority of, of, of cases. And there's numerous examples of projects that have done tremendous things. I remember uh, one of my favorite podcasts or webinars on this was one done by the Innovation Forum. If the viewers want, they can look at, if you look at innovationforum.co.uk and plug in Kasigau, K-A-S-I-G-A-U, it's really powerful because what it does, it just puts the people who are implementing on the ground on screen. And they describe the process that they have. So they get money from the sale of carbon credits. It goes into a pool. And there's a person who says, okay, I run requests for proposals amongst the community. And people, what do you want? And you've got the guy who runs the rangers. He's like, hey, hey, I need more money for rangers because we have more poaching and need to train and have more rangers. And the other person saying, well, hang on a bit. I need more money for schools uh, because education is really important to this community. And it just illustrates how well-run projects can have a tremendous impact on the ground. I get that maybe in some cases there's been some, uh, there's been issues with that, but um, I I think that's a minority. And I would actually venture to even as far to say that that may have happened. And we have did hear that happening in early cases before you even had standards where people were going out and saying, hey, I I can get you all this money for carbon credits and I promise you this don't give them anything because they never register the project. So there has been some element of shenanigans going on around that. But one thing that we have considered, um, and it's a it's a kind of a new evolution, and Toby can talk to this, um, is that, you know, in the, we're about to issue, we, we, we did an announcement on this a couple of months ago, I think, where we proposed, uh, there's a proposal to create a label for reforestation projects. It's called the Abacus Label. And essentially, like it's essentially reforestation project on steroids because it does kind of everything that we want it to, but even more. So maybe you know one idea would be potentially to float the idea that you could do you put a label on projects that commit to a certain level of benefit sharing, right? And if it's transparently uh, presented and shared with the community, those co- those projects could get that label. And I would imagine that would be very valuable for the market. Um, so there's there's different ways of, of thinking about the problem um, or, or thinking about the challenge. But ultimately, what we want is we want the local communities and the indigenous peoples to really be engaged in this process, particularly in places where they are engaged with either carbon credit projects, as we know, let's say red projects, or also in the context of this nature framework that we also discussed, which is also a very powerful tool potentially to drive finance and support for those communities. 
Yeah, no, I agreed with all that. I agree with all that. And just to add, you know, in terms of benefit sharing, it, it should be looked at with a broad lens. And first and foremost, a lot of this, when you're talking about land use, land rights, is actually make, making sure that local communities and indigenous peoples maintain access and the ability to manage and use that land in a sustainable way. And frankly, currently there is, is intense pressures that is going against that. And those are often happening at the global or the national levels. And forest carbon projects, for example, can provide a unique way to actually support local communities to maintain their tenure, their ability to continue to generate and rely on the ecosystem services and non-timber forest products and other benefits from managing that land. And so when we think about benefit sharing, a lot of it is not so much about like a cash payment or even necessarily a direct job of planting or restoring or conserving trees, but it's actually working on things like land tenure. So I can say from my days at Conservation International, some of the early carbon projects, for example, in Peru, the first thing that we would do or Conservation International would do to actually secure the land and maintain the carbon value um, of the forest was to actually work with communities and support them working with the government to secure land tenure so that they and their families could stay on the land and continue to farm sustainably coffee and shade-grown coffee in this case and not be worried about chase being chased off the land or a, a, an outside party, an illegal logger or miner coming in and destroying their areas. And so carbon finance and carbon projects were critical at establishing land tenure that now these farmers can stay on the land and generate sustainable in income and livelihood for their families. Then the projects went in to go further to actually support them with water, uh, basically water projects that gave more readily uh, and reliable access to water. And then finally on uh, health clinics and schools. And so all those things were critical actually for conserving the forest because if you don't have sustainable livelihoods and security of land tenure and educated populace, et cetera, you have those risks uh, of losing the forest and losing the carbon. So those were the kinds of things that these carbon projects did and were tremendous in terms of benefit sharing, but they're not what you might think of as like a cash payment. It's more fundamental to supporting communities and indigenous peoples. And Vera is very committed to that. And honestly, now I think maybe two thirds of all of our forest carbon projects are using the climate community and biodiversity standards on top of the BCS to actually show what specific benefits the local communities are getting and having those independently verified. And so that is a really important step in the right direction. That's great. And you're, you're talking about these non-carbon benefits of these projects. We've, we've touched on this a few times. And I think at AIDA, we, we wrote up a piece about how governments can start to think about the role of carbon markets in overall um, development targets. And I, I wonder how Vera is uh, thinking about their role in that space, especially as we're staring down the barrel of a very large, potentially very large market, uh, uh, you know, 10Xing, 15Xing. Um, how, how are you interacting with governments to, to help them plan for the use of, of VCMs and are, how are you articulating that potential benefit and impact? Yeah, it's a great question. So we have a kind of an active team working on that. And obviously we've, I mentioned before, we you know, we're supporting the governments of South Africa and Colombia, but also a, a number of other governments. We've signed a number of MOUs that are really designed around helping to support uh, governments as they develop carbon markets. And for instance, helping them develop um, accreditation frameworks for local auditors, right? So they can be supporting this market 
But there's another element of those conversations that we have with governments, which are about, and this is just early stages, but it's an important piece, which is um, helping governments to understand that there isn't a, uh, an endless pot of money, right? I think there's this, this idea like, oh, great, voluntary markets are here. Let's just use them to help us do everything. And I think that's an unrealistic proposition. Um, I think in an ideal world, just like we have corporates and we try to encourage corporates to make the internal reductions that they can, and that makes sense uh, and lead them down to a path to net zero, and they can offset the residual emissions. I think governments need to be taking on board the idea like they can't rely on the voluntary market to do everything. They ideally will identify the sectors that they think the voluntary market can help them with, and they will take on board themselves the sectors that they ought to be working on. Uh, and that they're willing to to kind of focus on and, and resolve themselves. And I think that if I'm a buyer of a carbon credit, right, and I've done the hard work to say, okay, I've looked at all my scope one, scope through scope three emissions, and I've I've made the investments to to get on that on that net zero pathway, and I'm and I'm doing the extra push to kind of invest and and address my residual emissions. I want those to count. And if I know that on the flip side. Governments have said, okay, I'm going to take care of X, Y, and Z sectors, but I can use some help with A and B. That's a really powerful uh, setup to really make this happen. So I think that's part of what we're starting to see and part of the ongoing conversations that we're having with governments. Um, but I think you know it's, uh, it's still early days. But again, going back to my previous points, if we, the voluntary market ecosystem, can make it very easy for corporates to understand what kind of claims they can make on car when they buy and retire carbon credits, and they know what kind of credits they can buy to make those claims, then we've facilitated that and we've enabled the flow of this big pool of capital, which, which we can then direct to the stuff that makes the most sense while also making sure that governments are actually taking on the role and really helping to deliver on their NDCs. That's helpful. So what I'm hearing is that Corporates need to know how to do the thing that they're trying to do, and you're facilitating that by frameworks and standards for which they can enter the market space with integrity, and hopefully some other regulation will come forth so that the claims are standardized, and then the supply side is very integrated, high rigor, continually evolving standards, and the project integrity is, is being um, taken very seriously. And so the market is pretty healthy is what I'm hearing, and it's it's positioned to scale and you are doing a lot of work to kind of guide and facilitate all that effort. Um, so that's that's pretty good. That's pretty good. Yeah, and just to say, Armando, I think it's been a theme of today's discussion is that, um, you know, we certainly feel strongly, and I think all the evidence and analysis would bear out that we need all hands on deck in all areas, all sectors, and all approaches. So that means we need governments setting aggressive climate policy and regulation to control as far and fast as possible, top down. We need corporates uh, and industry to do their part and actually do everything they can to decarbonize and squeeze out emissions, not just directly in their operations, but through their whole value chains and even end use of products. And then we also need market mechanisms uh, like what Vera pioneers and, and helps manage that bring integrity and the ability for finance to flow to other activities that otherwise wouldn't be supported, uh, wouldn't be supported and are critical 
for us addressing the climate challenge. And I think if we do all those things together and in a complementary way, and we recognize that we're learning as we go, so that we, you know, that the, enemy, the perfect can't be the enemy of the good, that we're actually trying and improving through various fast cycle iterations and new versions of standards, new approaches to using technology for verification, et cetera. If we're constantly learning, uh, 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 you know, each step of the way and improving and doing it all together with business, governments, and markets, I think we have a chance of actually tackling this. But it, it isn't an and or, and it isn't waiting until everything is dialed in and perfect. It's about doing it what we can right now and then improving and going from there as we scale up. I think that's a great takeaway message, actually. That was a great summary statement, yeah. Yeah, and um, yeah, I guess just to say we're at Earthshot, we're excited to, to help push that space forward and um, pilot some of these things that, that you're innovating. Um, I'm looking forward to the journey of scaling up climate action and, and sort of being, being a voice in this space, which is what we're trying to do today with the podcast. Yeah, well, thank you for the invitation to, to be here with you guys. Hope that was uh, helpful and uh, informative for your audience. Yeah. 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 Thanks, guys. And also say for the good work with the Earthshot you're doing in terms of bringing integrity and scale to your growing portfolio of projects, you know, that, that's where the rubber meets the road. So thank you for your all climate leadership as well. Thank you for listening to the Earthshot podcast. This episode was edited by Theodore Lowry from StoryPaths. And the music you heard during the intro was by Little Whale. To learn more about Earthshot Labs, visit our website, www.earthshot.eco. Okay.